Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver, and welcome to Biblical World listeners. This is a republished uh, episode, part one of a three-part series that we're going to play over the next couple days, focusing on the archaeology of Passion Week. This is part one here, and we'll publish the next two over the next two days. So hope that you find them helpful as we round out Holy Week here. So enjoy. Thanks so much for listening. Hey everyone, a quick disclaimer before we start this episode. We had originally planned to have a YouTube version of this with lots of visuals, but for various reasons it just got too complicated. And so uh, there are slides if you want visuals to go along with this episode, uh, because as you listen to this, there will be references to, to images as if they're in front of you. And so you'll have to go on an imaginative journey or look along with uh, the pictures on the website. So you can just go to onscript.study forward slash biblical world, and there's a link to a PDF uh, that has the visuals for this episode. We'll have that for the future episodes in this series as well. So hope you enjoy it. Welcome back, listeners, to Onscript, the Biblical World podcast. I am Chris McKinney, your host for today's episode on the archaeology of Passion Week. Um, I'm joined by another host of the podcast, Kyle Keimer, who has done a lot of work in this area. I know this is an area that both of us really appreciate, having lived in uh, Jerusalem here and there over the years. And of course, something that is just really near and dear to Christians all over the world, uh, but especially those who want to see a connection with the land of the Bible, the sights and sounds of Passion Week, which is uh, really at the heart, of course, of what we read in the New Testament Gospels. Uh, I always like to, to when, when, when scholars talk about the Gospels, they, they talk about them as being passion narratives with a little bit of introduction, uh, because so much of them is associated with Passion Week. And so we're excited to, to develop this series on the archaeology of Passion Week. Uh, I'm going to let Kyle uh, kind of introduce a little bit further. So go ahead, Kyle. Hey, thanks, Chris. Uh, it's good to be here. And uh, yeah, like you said, I think I just second a lot of what you said there. And, you know, I think for us, we both have such an interest in this material, kind of from an archaeological, but textual, historical, and even theological perspective. There's so much, so many places that everything kind of dovetails together nicely. And um, with the way archaeology is, is being conducted in Jerusalem these days, I mean, with the, the, the pace that it's being conducted, that is, there's always new things coming out. And so we thought, yeah, it'd be really great to just sit and talk about some of the more recent discoveries and what kind of light that sheds on the text, because you know, we can read the text all, all we want, but the archaeology gives us this, this window into kind of the worldview of the authors, and it kind of allows us to move beyond the text in some regards and read between the lines. And so, yeah, just um, let's, let's jump into it and start uh, talking about some of these things and, and see where it leads us. Sounds great. Sounds great. And I, I totally concur. You know, when we think about even in the in the past decades, you know, the new discoveries that have been that have been made in, in Jerusalem uh, associated with the Second Temple period, right during the time when Jesus would have been uh, with his disciples in Jerusalem during during Passion Week. So there's much there. And I would also add that um, I, I think these new discoveries that have been located, like, again, in the city of David, in the area of the Temple Mount, they're starting to make appearances in the way um, gospel entertainment, or let's say 
depictions of the Gospels and Jesus stories are, are, are demonstrated in the movies as well as TV shows such as something like The Chosen or The Passion of the Christ. All of these, are, they're trying to incorporate them more and more, uh, which gives us a, a much more realistic depiction. Now, they don't always get it right, uh, but the, it, 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 it's encouraging when we compare some of the older things that uh, that existed on these on these foundation stories. But without further ado, let's let's get into it and let's uh, let's talk about Passion Week overall. What is Passion Week? Um, how does it how does it relate to uh, the Gospels? Um, and how can we understand um, the, you know how this fits in with archaeology? Yeah, yeah, good questions, Chris. Um, so one thing to note for our, our listeners that uh, we're going to have this conversation, but we're actually also uh, recording some visuals that go along with this. And so if you want to see some of these visuals, you just go to the YouTube channel uh, and watch watch this podcast in, in addition to listening to it as well. And you'll see some of the things that we're, we're describing and talking about. Uh, all I had to say, I just brought up a chart that basically breaks down the Passion Week uh, of of Jesus. And basically, again, this is the last week of Jesus' life where he comes into Jerusalem, the things that he's doing, the places he goes, and and then for us in particular, what what kind of archaeology do we have that, that connects or sheds light on on these events, these people, these these places. And so yeah, we're gonna work through it. And then also one of the, I think one of the really important things that we need to discuss as we move through are the traditions that have arisen around this this passion week right because on the one hand there are traditions that are good and then there are traditions that are something else and so you know it, it's going to be helpful to talk about you know where some of these traditions arise such as the the via dolorosa right well where does that come from does is it in any way realistic or does it map onto the the events of jesus's um kind of crucifixion and, and, you know, the movement from his trial to being crucified, or do we need to really th- look at it in a different way? So, um, yeah, I'll just say that to kind of start things off. Great. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of these things are of real interest. Many of our listeners uh, may either want to go or have gone to Israel. Uh, they've, they've gone to different places, such as the Garden Tomb, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They've walked on the Via Dolorosa and perhaps experienced uh, great spiritual highs uh, or sometimes spiritual lows when it was not quite ex- was what they were expecting. Um, but I think it's important for uh, for us to, as much as possible as historians, as archaeologists, to get as close as we can to uh, what Jerusalem actually looked like in 30 AD or 33 AD and what the streets would have looked like and how that changed over, over time. And uh, I suspect one of the things that we're going to talk about is that it's a little bit different than it was in the days of uh, of Jesus and Pontius Pilate. That uh, things uh, changed a lot over the the next century after his death. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good point. And you know, as in the archaeological world, you know, we have these kind of um, periods. So we'll talk about the the Hellenistic period, the Roman period, and then we can break these down further into the early Roman period, the late Roman period. Some people would break it down even further into that and say the Herodian period. And you know, we're becoming more and more refined in our ability to 
place specific buildings and or archaeological features in a specific historical period, but we can't always nail it down 100% to a, a specific calendrical date, which we always have to keep in mind. But you're right, you know, when we talk about Jerusalem, right, oftentimes it, it's you know, Herodian Jerusalem at large, but Herodian Jerusalem is not exactly the Jerusalem that Jesus is going to be seeing in 30, 33 AD. It's not going to be the same Jerusalem in 44 AD. It's not going to be the same Jerusalem in 69 AD. There are lots of changes. It's an evolving, growing city throughout this time period. And um, so we want to try as best we can to, to break that down a bit and say, what we what can we talk about with, with certainty or worth, worth great possibility? And what are do we need to be a bit more wary about when we're talking about you know, the physical archaeological remains that we see today and how they connect to this Passion Week? Yeah, I think it's a good point. Uh, the way I normally tell my students or people I'm touring around Jerusalem with is to use the letter H. Uh, the big changes that happen in Jerusalem uh, seem to be figures associated with the letter H. Uh, Hezekiah, who expands the city in the uh, 8th century and fortifies what we call the, the, Western, uh, the Western Hill. Herod the Great, who largely um, creates what we have in the first, uh, the first century, in the, days, in the days of Jesus, which includes uh, both hills as well as the Temple Mount, uh, and so on. A hundred years after him, in the 130s AD, we have Hadrian, Another H, of course, it's in English, you know, in Latin it's with an A, uh, but it, you know, it works. And the city that as we have it today, the old city, is largely of um, a, a, a connection to the city plan that was constructed after what we call the Bar Kokhba Revolt, 132 to 136 AD, um, and then built upon that uh, with yet a fourth H, Helena, mother of Constantine, uh, when the Byzantine church of the Holy Sepulchre, and many other churches began to emerge in the Christian era of Jerusalem. And so uh, just a, that, uh, that's helpful for me to think about Jerusalem as it develops around the letter H. Uh, but you weren't, I bet you weren't expecting we were going to be talking about Sesame Street. Uh, but the letter H is important. <laughs> it's good. It's good nonetheless. I think it, it appeals to our younger audience. Yes, that's, that's right. That's right. Well, why don't you, why don't you work us through this Sunday and uh, this the Palm Sunday um, that we have during uh, during Passion Week. Do you have some comments on that? Yeah, so the, the first few days, at least archaeologically speaking, we, we'll probably can move through quickly because there's not a whole lot that seems to be happening based on the gospel descriptions, but we know that Jesus comes uh, via Jericho, uh, which is down in the Jordan Valley, climbs up into the mountains where Jerusalem is located, and he's staying at Bethany with some some friends, and then he'll kind of make the trip, uh, maybe daily, uh, at least quite regularly, that during this last week between Bethany and uh, Jerusalem, and in order to do so, he climbs up over the Mount of Olives, and from there he would dip down through the Kidron Valley, and then ascend into Jerusalem via one of the, probably the southeastern gate down by the Pool of Siloam, and then make his way up to the temple. And it seems that the first, kind of his arrival, right, the, the laying of the palms and everyone celebrating is, is merely him entering into the city and then proceeding to the temple. And then from there, he maybe does some teaching that day and goes back out. And there's, a, again, there's a, a lot of discussion about the specific timing, the specific events. I mean, the Gospels, 
aren't meant to give us a, a 100% clear roadmap of every single movement of Jesus, right? They're, they give us a lot of details, which is great for us to help reconstruct, but there are still many discussions that are taking place about some of the very specific elements of that. All that to say, once he goes to, uh, enters the city, it seems that he, he leaves again, heads back to Bethany for the night, stays there, and then he's going to return on the following day. And one thing I will just add, um, and point out and remind some of our listeners who I'm sure are probably familiar with this is that when we're talking about some of these days, right, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, the Western kind of conception of the day from say midnight to, you know, 1150 PM, 1159 PM, that's our day. But in Judaism, right, the day starts in the evening. So Sunday would be from basically the, the, that evening until the following evening. And so the, the alignment, again, of when some of these events are taking place is, is maybe going to be a little different, or it might also account for some of the, um, the challenges or the, um, the discussion of when some of these places, uh, sorry, when some of these events are taking place is because we do have to remember that the way they reckon days and time was a little bit different for um, that uh, the Jewish audience back then. Yeah, I think that's a, an excellent point and something to always keep in mind when we're talking about Passion Week. Um, and this plays a role not only in terms of, you know, when do we fit in what narratives we have in the Synoptic Gospels and John with what day it occurred on, uh, but also even the the resurrection itself. You know that he'll be in the he'll be in the ground for three days. Well, you know, if you, a simple math equation. Friday, three o'clock, and then Sunday, early morning. Well, that's that's parts of three days, but it's not quite exactly what we think of in, in terms of our modern understanding, but it certainly accounted for three days in uh, the ancient setting. So I think just an awareness of um, what these things mean in terms of the days is not exactly the way we think about a day. Uh, they certainly weren't watching the ball drop uh, on December 31st, uh, to, to mark the new year. Uh, they marked it in very different ways than we would. Um, and so I think that's a really important point to, uh, to point out. And so if we think about uh, even some, like, like you mentioned, there's elements of the story that are uh, really interesting in terms of um, with, with, with the idea of him going back and forth to Bethany, um, that this, this local, uh, it's this local daughter site of Jerusalem, and that actually plays a role in the story too. When he comes into the city, it talks about the daughter of Zion, uh, and this is an Old Testament allusion to these neighborhood settlements around uh, the site. And so, re- as you as you mentioned, listeners may not even be aware that you know we n- probably know where Jesus stays during Passion Week. He's going back and forth to the site of Bethany, and interestingly enough, that place is called. Lazaria, which preserves the name Lazarus, because this, of course, is the same place that we have uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, uh, which in itself is a uh, another archaeological site with a tradition and uh, everything associated with that. So, um, again, very important to remember the settings as well as as well as the time. Well, I, I brought a map up here too, just to, for those that are going to watch this on the YouTube and want a visual. So there's a, a, a map here from a, a company called Biblical Backgrounds, which creates these fantastic 3D maps. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you're not going to find anything better for getting a lay of the land and understanding the historical geography and just um, you know, getting a sense for, for where things are. And so you can see here just a close-up of the, the greater Jerusalem area. And you see in red is marked the modern-day Old City, 
which, as, as we know, is not actually the oldest part of Jerusalem or the oldest settlement of Jerusalem. It's the uh, Ottoman period, basically, which is following largely, again, kind of Byzantine um, routes to the city wall. But you can see here, if I'm not sure if my pointer shows up, but Bethany is off to the right, uh, and then you ascend further over the Mount of Olives, um, or perhaps you go around it to the south and then approach Jerusalem from from the south there. And so again, uh, here's just, I'll just throw up a few images as we talk about this. We've got here a, a view of the Mount of Olives. I love this picture um, that, that I put up here. It's covered in snow. And again, you know, for those who have this idea of what the Middle East is, you know, it's, oh, it's a flat desert. Well, no, it's not. And, and you know, we've, we've talked about this in another podcast. You know, it's, it's a very diverse landscape. And particularly Jerusalem, it's in, it's in the mountains. It, it gets snow on a fairly regular occasion, and everything shuts down, of course, today, because they're not, they're, you know, no, nobody's really ready for the snow, so it's almost like a little holiday. But it, get, it does give you a sense of, of um, I don't know, it, here's what it really actually looks like as opposed to what the movies might make you think it looks like. So here's this uh, Mount of Olives. Again, it's a, it's a large mountain. And when we think about Jerusalem, the, the city, in the days of Jesus, actually, you know, even up until the, the old city, right, it's not on the highest hill in the region, which is very uh, important um, in a number of other contexts, particularly when Isaiah uh, talks about everyone returning to Jerusalem, it's going to be the highest mountain. And you actually go there and you say, oh, wait a second, the Mount of Olives is a lot higher, the ridge to the north is higher, the ridges to the west are higher, the ridge to the south is all higher. Jerusalem's kind of in a basin. Huh, that's weird. All that to say, that's a bit of a side thing, but here's a view of the Mount of Olives. And then as you're coming over, you would come to this view of looking at the city of Jerusalem itself, and you would see it kind of sprawling out before you. And here's a nice view of what it looks like today from the Mount of Olives. And obviously you see the remnants of Herod's temple platform there dominating the picture. And on top of it today, of course, stands the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, which were con completed in the seventh uh, and eighth centuries AD. And if we overlay this, right, to the best of my artistic photoshopping ability, here's what it probably would have looked like in the days of Jesus, something, something like this. Now, again, some of the features of the temple platform itself are probably still being constructed in Jesus's day, um, but by and large, it gives you a good uh, idea of what he may have experienced. And it also gives you a good idea of what his disciples who are coming to Jerusalem are experiencing as kind of these country bumpkins coming from the Galilee, right? This is, this is like a new experience, right? If you go and if you can think back to the first time you ever saw a skyscraper or some just enormous thing that kind of, you know, took your breath away. You're like, wow, I didn't realize people could build something like this. And it's that same experience coming into Jerusalem, which obviously in its own regard is this kind of contradictory thing with the message of Jesus and, you know, where your, your emphasis should be on. Is it, is it on might and prowess and making a name for yourself and, you know, being remembered through this or that, or is it, you know, having this relationship with, with God? Yeah, I think it's, I think that's some, some really important points there. And you know, one of the things I just kind of want to hone in on a bit is if we think about the, um, the, the temple itself, um, how central this is to Jewish life, to the disciples' life, even to Jesus' life. Every time he's in Jerusalem, he's, he's in the temple. He's, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's talking to the crowds. But I think you bring up a good point if we're thinking about this from an archaeological standpoint. It's pretty clear now that the temple was a very much an ongoing project. 
It was continuing from the days of Herod the Great, probably something like uh, 20 BC or so, and it continued long after his death. In fact, uh, those of you who have walked in the Western Wall uh, tunnels, uh, which which goes along the uh, the western side of the western wall of the Temple Mount, uh, you actually at the end of that come to the place where they stopped. They never the the, the Temple Mount of Herod was never finished. Um, in fact, it, it it wasn't finished because there was a revolt which started out in sixty six or sixty seven A.D. And so this kind of dynamic of this temple that is standing, and of course the the main structure, you know, the main structure was 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 completed, and the royal stoa to the south. Uh, were, were, were finished, but the walls, the streets, uh, these were in a, a constant state of use as well as a constant state of further beautification. Um, and that's where really archaeology can give us some some really dynamic details about how this was changing and even the access points that um, that the disciples and Jesus and later on Paul and, and, and other members of the early church, James, brother of Jesus, would have would have known uh, it, it's pretty clear now that the main hub, the main street that um, that was that Jerusalem was centered around, was actually built during the uh, during the the governorship of Pontius Pilate. So precisely during the time that we that we were talking about that we're talking about here. Um, so it's it, again, as you as you indicated, it's it's just this dynamic aspect to it, and yet as you also indicate the. The idea that this this wonderful, beautiful temple is not the goal. <laughs> it's not the goal of why the king is coming on Palm Sunday. Um, there's something deeper, and it really might even say a um, a greater enemy than Rome that needs to be defeated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, good points. Um, and, yeah, and, you, and you touch on something as well that um, you know I was going to jump into, um, which we might as well talk a little bit about it right now too. Is is um, with um, this monumental staircase? I'm just trying to remember the order of my slides here. Um, there's a picture of. Um, well, actually, you know, I'm going to save it. We will make the people wait in suspense for this discussion. But but you're right. You know, the archaeology as it's being discovered it helps us to kind of parcel out the the sequence of construction. And and um, we know now today that under kind of the southwestern corner of the temple platform itself, there are, are mikveot, right, ritual baths that were cut into the bedrock, and the temples built on top of these. And in the material inside those those baths are coins from the days of Tiberius. And so. Obviously, Herod the Great didn't finish the temple platform because he died before Tiberius became emperor. And so you can't have coins from an emperor who didn't rule underneath something that was built earlier in time. It just doesn't work until, of course, time machines are created. But, you know, we're not there yet. So right, we know that this, you know, the archaeology is helping us kind of piece this together. And, of course, one of the things that this always, I think, in academia, I remember when, when this was first kind of made public, some scholars said, oh, this is going to change the way we understand everything about the temple platform, and we have to rethink it. Well, it, it really shouldn't, because the textual sources actually capture some of this. Like you said, and the, you know, whether we're looking at Josephus or even the Gospels, it talks about the construction of the temple 
the temple itself and the temple platform is taking place over a very long period of time. And it's still being, yeah, constructed into the, the latter part of the first century AD. And so really it's, it's not such a, an earth shattering new discovery. It ha helps us to pinpoint some spe specifics, but it doesn't make us rethink the way everything was done as some may have, may have sensationalized it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one that comes to mind, I think it's in John, I think it's in John two or John three, where they say that it's been it's being built for 46 years and you're going to tear it down in three days. I mean, it shows that there's this long, extended uh, building process. And I, I think you're also right on when we talk about the uh, kind of the rush to judgment on these types of uh, pieces of data that it, it, it's to try and turn everything that we know on its head, when in reality, it just makes it a little bit more complicated. And so as far as the these later, um, you know, this later, and we're talking about a couple, a couple decades. Um, but it, it most likely, at least to me, makes sense that there is ongoing construction and reconstruction in a place that needs the to expand streets, needs to continue to uh, deal with things like earthquakes and erosion and, and such. So, um, and this was really um, kind of standard throughout the Roman Empire, where you would have the next uh, the next emperor the next governor uh continue to build and this is actually what most of the roman soldiers were doing when they weren't fighting the wars uh they were building up the infrastructure of rome now of course in jerusalem it's a little bit different because we have a variety of things happening there and it's not until later that we start to see um roman soldiers really construct much of what we have in in late roman jerusalem but uh, good points nevertheless yeah. So as we, you know, I'm just trying, I'll try and match up with the, with the slides here, a little bit of what I'm, I'm saying, even though I want to come back to some of the points you made too, particularly about this, this, um, kind of monumental staircase that leads from the pool of Siloam, which is at the Southern end of Jerusalem, um, and leads up to the temple platform. Um, so, but because I have a picture of the temple, maybe we'll just talk a little bit about that, right? So Jesus comes in, enters Jerusalem, and on this first day, maybe the second day, he comes in, he does his whole cleansing of the temple where he overturns the, the money changers and, and says, you know, this is not going to be, you know, it's not supposed to be a house of robbers, right? It's, it's you know, a place of, of worship. And, you know, there's a, an interesting point that Shimon Gibson makes in a, a book that he wrote called The Archaeology of Jesus' Last Days, which is a, a great book um, if anyone's interested. And he says, you know, uh, we, we perhaps have this vision of Jesus coming in and just flipping tables over and screaming and, you know, really creating a ruckus, but they don't arrest him. And it seems that he just goes back the next day and teaches some more and everybody seems okay with it. And so there's, there's two points, I guess. Number one is, you know, to what did this scene actually look like uh, from a historical perspective? You know, I, I mean, certainly it seems that there was a scene being made, but was it as grandiose as perhaps at least I think, or as others think when we envision things? And then the other question is where exactly is this taking place, right? Is it, is it on the actual temple platform, kind of the outer courtyard, or is it actually just off the temple platform on the street with all the shops where we know archeologically we have a row of shops lining everything. And does this count as part of the holy, holy kind of sanctuary because it's built right next to and or adjacent to the platform itself? 
or is it you know, is it something else? And so that's all um, I'll say here. I'll just bring up another illustration in this um, great drawing from National Geographic from a few years ago of the temple platform. And you know what we're talking about is off here in the southwestern corner. There's a monumental staircase that that goes up that would have given you access probably to the um, the uh, the great building here. Um, and just below it, there are shops. On, on underneath the staircase and then it appears that there may have been some shops along the southern uh, facade of the temple platform as well so you know is is this where Jesus is, is having this kind of confrontation or has he moved up into the outer courtyard where uh, perhaps outside where even Gentiles were allowed to come uh, in this portion of the courtyard this is where these money changers were and Jesus is creating the scene there uh, to to kind of begin the process of this week. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And this is where it's so fun to think about how we can uh, connect both what we think about this archaeologically to, you know, what actually happened, where did it happen in terms of the royal stoa, the streets below it, was it the temple itself, court of the Gentiles, court of Israel, like there's all these candidates. But then there's the question of why uh, why is it that that Jesus comes in as king, holds court, if you will, by uh, by deciding that they can't do this? And then, like Luke indicates, he says that um, no one was allowed to carry a vessel without his approval. And so I think theologically, or perhaps a better word is typologically, what we have in those passages is something that is really central to the profile of the Messiah— going back not just to uh, prophetic references in Isaiah and so on, uh, but really even the concept of geographic space with, uh, with Yahweh in his house and the covenant messianic representative king in his house. And if we were to take this back to the days of Solomon in 1 Kings 6 through 8, we would learn that Solomon builds the house of Yahweh and directly to its right, we have a five-part palace, which includes a throne room, on which the son of David, in this case Solomon, would have sat. And so if you imagine if they're looking towards the east, as all temples do, and of course the palace would have as well, the throne of, of Yahweh, the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, looks out to the east, and directly to his right, we have the palace of Solomon, uh, and, and the palace of the kings of Judah. And so if we think about such passages as Psalm 110, where you know it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, it's not just a theological point about the exaltation of the Davidic Messiah, who Jesus claims to be, but it's actually a geographic point um, that is in connection with the very throne of God inside the temple um, that allows you to uh, if you will, and pun intended, look behind the veil uh, to be able to to see what theological, geographical, uh, as well as typological point they're trying to make. And that's what's so interesting about all of this, because there's so many layers that you can approach this on, um, whether you believe it as um, as gospel or not. Uh, there, there are so many interesting literary, archaeological, historical layers that are that are really fascinating. That archaeology and geography is a kind of uh, glimpse into. Yeah, and that's that's a great point, Chris. And I'll just add one thing to kind of go along with that. I mean, yeah, Jesus doesn't just say things; he says very specific things, 
at specific locations and there's a very good rationale for it and it's all tied to yeah earlier references in the text it's tied to the geographical um, understanding that that ancient Israel had that the Jews in second Judaism had and so right when Jesus says something there is this whole other layer to what he's saying so I think one of the best examples I always like to, to tell students about is when he's in um, Samaria at the well talking to the woman she says you know our ancestors say that our temple here is the right one your ancestors say it's in Jerusalem which one's right And he says you're both wrong Actually, the time is coming when you're going to be worshiping God in, in spirit, right? And you say, wow, that's, that's interesting. Great. Thanks, Jesus. Right. Um, and let's move on, right? But why did he say that there? Why did he say that at, at uh, Shechem, right? Sorry, the region of Samaria at Shechem. Well, where's the first place that Abraham comes when he, he comes to, to Canaan? At Shechem. Right? Where is the first place that the Israelites going to reconvene the covenant with Yahweh when they come back in in the days of Joshua? Shechem. What's the first capital of the northern kingdom? Shechem. Right? So this is a, a place that has all these connections that, that is rising, that's in the mind of these people. Right? And so there's something very significant about it, but then Jerusalem competes with it conceptually as well, because right, this is the, the seat of the temple of, of Yahweh. This is where David and Solomon and all the, the Judean kings sat. And so there's much more going on between both of these claims to having access to God. And Jesus says, it, no, you're, you're both wrong. It, you're going to access God in a different way. And had he said any of this somewhere else, it would it would have completely lacked any of that additional significance. Right. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And it, what, what's so interesting too is is that it's not just it's not just one gospel writer. It's all of them. You know, they're all pulling on these, and they have different perspectives on that. And if if we go back to this idea of the temple. Uh, and we think of the idea of this being the area of Solomon's uh, palace, as well as the as well as the temple. John in John ten, in you know in the in the in the weeks and months before the Passion Week, he puts Jesus and the disciples on the Temple Mount, and it specifically says that they are in Solomon's portico. Um, and this is where we have perhaps the the greatest declaration of divinity, at least in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, "I and the Father are one." And they pick up stones because they know what he's trying to say. He's he's essentially equating himself uh, with with God at, while looking at both the temple and where the the throne of the Davidic king would have been. And so these are not um, we we can get at the theology uh, without recreating the archaeology, but adding the archaeology and this setting to it adds an additional layer that makes it all the more obvious uh, to the audience. And it really un- helps us understand why they would pick up stones uh, to, to stone him on, the, on that point. Uh, so let's, let's keep going. Let's keep moving through um, the temple. Uh, as we move through Sunday, and I know there's a bit of a debate, is did it happen on Sunday or did it happen on Monday that we have the, the cleansing of the temple? Uh, Matthew and Mark uh, give a little bit different uh, perspective on that point. But let's just say that happened on Sunday for the sake of argument. Uh, what happens on on Monday? Well, it seems that uh, it's a, a bit of a slow day. And so Jesus, you know, from the gospel perspective, it, it seems Jesus probably goes back to Bethany, then comes back again. And the only episode really, again, whether we say it's on Monday or Tuesday, and again, we're not going to worry so much about pinpointing precisely, but it's the whole episode of the cursing of the fig tree, and then he comes back and appears to teach in Jerusalem, or sorry, teach in the temple again. Um, and, um, you know, one of the interesting things, I think, you know, for, again, if we're just going to focus on the archaeology here for, for just a second, is 
the the entire kind of esplanade of, of Herod's temple platform, I mean, we, we know, and we know, you know, where some of the, the access points were. We also know that just to the south, there are a number of ritual baths, mikvahot, and one of the things I think that we should consider and keep in mind is that, you know, Jesus and his disciples as as religious Jews in the day probably are visiting these these ritual baths before they ascend up to uh, the temple platform itself. And so, you know, they're dressing in the, the regular garb of the day. They're practicing the, you know, some of the same ritual. And we, obviously we know there's debates about some of the, the traditions according to the gospel writers. But stands to reason that they're going into these mikvot, becoming ritually pure, and then proceeding up to the temple itself. And again, when we look at the archaeology, we see that there's such a concern in not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea, in Galilee, actually, even to a certain degree, I, I would argue, in certain areas of the diaspora, that ritual purity, which comes out of an interpretation of a passage from Leviticus about living water and, and becoming clean, is a real prime concern in, in this day and age in, in Judaism, or in Judaisms, you know, however we want to define that with all the different variations. And I think one of the, the important things is to remember that, you know, there, I think there's such a concern with, with we don't don't want to see a replication of the Babylonian destruction, you know, from the sixth century. We just want to do things right. We want to ensure that we maintain our access to God, and we're going to do what we can, interpreting it through a living tradition to to ensure that this is um, how things are taking place. And it's funny that you know, on the one hand, Jesus comes in and obviously is a part of all of this. And we can see this archaeologically, but on the other hand, he kind of turns the tables, to make a little pun back to what we were just talking about, right? and um, is going to kind of change the way that some of that is conceptualized. Yeah, I think, it's, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, one of the hard parts for people that don't read the Old Testament, um, which is the majority of the church, I feel like, is that you often miss the best parts of what the New Testament is trying to get at. Um, so if you don't understand not only the kind of the historical understanding of the apostasy that developed in Jerusalem in the Babylonian destruction, uh, such as passages like Ezekiel um, six through uh, or eight through eleven, and, and the the exile, but but also even more specific ideas um, about this ritual purification and Jesus touching on that, where he think, says things also in John. You know, I am the, you know, the, I am the, the living waters that we have. Um, but even, I would even say, if we, if we continue with John and we, we get into the upper room, uh, the upper room uh, discourse in, in, John's, uh, in John's gospel, the washing of the disciples, uh, baptism itself is not a, um, an alien idea to Judaism. It's a built upon the ideas of what we have in, um, in, in, in first century Judaism as a completion of it, not as a um, as something completely new. And so it's so important that we see what preceded the developments that we have in Christianity with uh, with Christ as this kind of once for all thing, whether it is the crucifixion and the resurrection, but also baptism, as these are adaptions, uh, or we would call them fulfillments of what was what was what was before. Yeah. Yeah. Good point, Chris. And I think that's another thing really just to, to keep in mind. And, you know, on, on the one hand, Jesus, you know, there's, I think there's a debate within biblical studies of how revolutionary was Jesus. On the one hand, some of the things he says, you know, 
probably are a bit unique or, or have a, di- a different view than many of the other Jews had at the time. On the other hand, it's completely built in the same same culture. I mean, we can't deny that it's 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 a form of Judaism and that they're building upon these traditions that go back hundreds of years. And we see this, you know, textually alluded to um, traditions that are are built upon archaeology that connects this as well and brings to life some of these these ideas. And so, yeah, I just want to second, I think that that's a great point that you made. That's it's, We're not experiencing Jesus, or I should say Jesus isn't experiencing you know, Jerusalem or Judaism in a vacuum. It's all being built upon, and right, he He's got yes the Old Testament as as Christians know today the Hebrew Bible for for Jews right that's that's his Bible there is no New Testament and so anyone who's who's not kind of taking full advantage and reading this this Old Testament is really it's it's like jumping into a movie halfway through and catching the very end I mean wow that was fantastic well yeah you could probably get some satisfaction out of that but if you watch the entire thing and knew all the storylines and how it built and how it crescendoed and you know everything else you're gonna get a far better experience. Yeah, I, I would add my favorite one, which is completely nerdy, but I'll say it nevertheless. It's um, as much as I love the Lord of the Rings, uh, the Lord of the Rings is kind of like the Gospels in the New Testament because it's so well put together and things come together. But if you don't read the Silmarillion, uh, which gives you kind of the Old Testament creation, foundation stories, typology, uh, you don't get all the oomph when you get to someone like Aragorn and how that fits, and or even the the idea of the ring. It, it it kind of is just standing on its own. But once you put the backstory into the climax of the entire story, which in this case, to use the analogy, would be the Silmarillion and all those things that that, that lead to the to the Lord of the Rings. And by the same token, the Old Testament, as we read. Uh, the, the messianic typology, the sacrificial system, and all of these things as they're coming to a head in the person and work of Jesus and the climactic moment of all history, at least from a Christian perspective, Passion Week, um, you, you just miss so much richness that the Bible has to offer. And what we're saying is, is you can get at that by just studying the Old Testament and just being aware of these, but you can, we're even more blessed, you might say, by the fact that we live in an era where we can get on a plane, COVID notwithstanding, and come to uh, Jerusalem and see all of the excavations that are taking place there to add this layer of color in a way that uh, Calvin and Luther and and so many did not have access to. And it's, it's, it's what really excites me as someone who has uh, always been interested in connecting place and uh, connecting these stories with a real time and place. Well, I, I put a map up here just to help, um, again, for those that are going to watch this and see the visuals to con- kind of contextualize. And again, it just highlights some of the, the aspects. So one way to just keep Jerusalem in mind um, topographically is that there's one water source, the Gihon Spring. There's two ridges, basically, the city of David Ridge, which ascends to the temple platform and the Western Hill. And then there are three valleys, so there's the Hinnom Valley along the west and the south. There's the Tirapoyan that kind of divides the two ridges. And there's the Kidron on the east. So one, two, three. 
there you go. Brief geography of Jerusalem helps you understand it. Right? It's all important because right um, there is there's so much you know in the the theology uh, the, the, of of this topography that we you know we can talk about and you know with this map up here you know, we already mentioned this kind of monumental staircase that that it, as archaeology shows it appears to have been built in the days of Pontius Pilate, which is a fantastic. Um, Conclusion um, based on numismatics—that's you know, coin evidence of coins and some of the other archaeology—and it really gives a light into uh, this this character from the gospel accounts that you know we we have mentioned in a few external classical sources, but you know it, it's not like there's a giant biography about Pontius Pilate. And so anything that we can fit archaeologically or connect to him is going to, uh, I think, just be interesting and shed some light on what what was happening in Jerusalem in that time period. And you know, it seems that he wants to make a name for himself in the same way that other kings that want to make a name for themselves or other rulers want to make a name for themselves. How do you do that? Well, as Chris mentioned before, you build something. Um, Herod builds a lot in Jerusalem. Before that, the Hasmoneans built a lot, right? Pontius Pilate, hey, let's renovate and build this monumental staircase um, to kind of facilitate and, you know, my greatness. And it leads from the Salome Pool down here on the, the south of, just south of the City of David Ridge. There's a nice big cliff that, that drops off there. And it goes from there all the way up to the the temple platform. And I, you know, it's, I always like to, to think about these Psalms of Ascent, you know, in, in the book of Psalms. There's, uh, there's uh, what, 10, if I remember correctly, specifically labeled Psalms of Ascent. And what are these? Well, Potentially, these are psalms that are being recited as pilgrims or, or whoever are, are proceeding up to Jerusalem, literally going up to Jerusalem in the mountains, or perhaps as you're going up to the house of God in Jerusalem. And, you know, there's, I think there's a, a whole aspect that unfortunately is really difficult to, to uh, discuss and articulate via the archaeology, and that's the kind of pilgrim theological experience of, you know, what did it look like? Did you have kind of processions like you see along the Via Dolorosa today? Did it, um, you know, what, was the, what were the sights and the sounds and everything that was taking place in Jerusalem at Passover? You, you know, it, it's an experience that we can't, unfortunately, capture in the archaeology, but at least we get a sense of, okay, here's the backdrop behind some of that, and, you know, let's imagine a bit now. Yeah, I, I think those are some, some, some excellent points, and in terms of the, the archaeological and historical background, uh, I would just add that not only do we have the, the sources from, um, from, from archaeology with the coins in the street, but in Luke's gospel, we also have this kind of random thing where people ask uh, Jesus, uh, or, or they bring up the, the collapse of the, the Tower of Siloam. Um, and it becomes this question of, it really casts Pontius Pilate in a bad light because he mixes their blood with the sacrifices. Uh, so maybe we shouldn't think so highly of Pontius Pilate. Um, uh, but what it also does is it tells us that he was actually working on the street at precisely this uh, this moment, and it also tells us that Luke knows about this this backstory because it's a unique Lucan uh, Lucan detail, which seems to fit in very nicely uh, with the archaeology uh, with the archaeology there. Um, and, and and as you said, you get these sights and sounds in the Gospels, and you get these sights and sounds also as more and more are is being excavated in the city of David. In fact, I would say that from what we currently have in the city of David is the vast majority 
of the remains date to this period, to the first century. I mean, this this humongous street uh, that would have cut through um, what's, what Josephus calls the the lower city of of Jerusalem. I mean, it's 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 really the the main section uh, that connects so much of this uh, so much of this story. Uh, and 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 the more as we go as we move on, we see just how how much we can really visualize uh, the events of of Passion Week. Well, you know, as as we as we wrap up on on Monday, you know, of Passion Week, we've we've gone through uh, Sunday through Palm Sunday. We've seen and talked about a variety of things associated with uh, Jesus in in Jerusalem during his last week. Um, and we've we've moved into into Monday. We've talked about the cleansing of the temple. We've talked about how you can move up and about in Jerusalem, most especially with this street that has been uncovered uh, more or less for a century, but more and more of it is being covered all the time. It's becoming really clear that uh, the setting of Jerusalem during Passion Week, during the the the, the days of, of Jesus, uh, his last week on on Earth before. Uh, the crucifixion is becoming very much a, um, a a recapturable world that we can really visualize, not only through archaeology but through reconstructions, such as the very famous um, model that exists now in the Israel Museum, which actually has to be really updated to accommodate all the new evidence that exists, but still is a great visual. And so um, we might say that there's this nice marriage between archaeology and the history that exists that we, as, as we find it, as well as the apex moment in, in, in the Gospels that allow us to visualize this in some really powerful ways. And we're going to continue more uh, through Passion Week in, in future episodes, uh, but so far we've got through Sunday and Monday. And I just want to, uh, I just want to, let you know, give you kind of a preview of what's ahead uh, with that. But we'll we'll come back and continue as we approach both the looming Friday event, but also the uh, the coming resurrection. And we'll spend some time in future episodes talking about whether or not the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is the likely location of the crucifixion and burial. What about the garden tomb uh, and how all of that fits into the puzzle? Kyle, do you have anything to add? No, I'm looking forward to continuing with uh, the next next installments of this this series. I think it's it's fantastic. So, but um, I think we've we've spread enough for now. Enough so. for now. We'll we'll, we'll pick yeah. it up next time. So, thank you to our to our listeners. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.